greetings and welcome to episode 19 of Beyond Huaxia. I'm your host, Justin Jacobs. Today we have one of the most romanticized topics in all of history. The only episode in this series in which you might actually be able to find the title of the episode on a cafe or a restaurant or the name of a TV show or something like that. Um, I can guarantee there are no other um, titles of any episodes from this series in which you'll go out and see, oh, let's go to the Northern Hybrid States Cafe or the Great Southern Migration, anything like that. No, but the Silk Road, the Silk Road is special. The Silk Road transcends the field of history and has entered mainstream culture and the very name itself evokes a romantic image of, you know, a long stream of camels right around sunset time with their shadows on the sand, walking over the dunes, uh, the cling clang of some camel bells in the distance, a little bit of wind and whatnot, um, you know, and then the merchants sitting on horseback, uh, I mean on camelback, plodding along at a snail's pace across the desert dunes. Okay, that's the image of the Silk Road, and that's very much something that whenever we think about these words, that's the image that comes into our mind, all right? Very romanticized. Well, after today's episode, we might not have such a romanticized image of the Silk Road, but you certainly will understand where the idea came from, what it represents, and then what the reality actually was on the ground based on what the historical record can show us. So let's first answer the most obvious question, what was the Silk Road and why should we care? We should always want to know why we should care, all right? Not just knowledge for its own sake. All right, Let's begin with the most important thing, the thing that's going to puncture the bubble of our romantic images of the Silk Road. The Silk Road was not predominantly defined by silk, and it had no stable roads. <laughs> okay? Uh, so right away, we're getting into the nitty-gritty of actual historical realities instead of the imagined uh, ro romanticizations. Human beings, Homo sapiens, have traversed Eurasia. All right, that's going to be our unit of analysis here, our geographical unit of analysis. Eurasia, the continent. Okay, humans have traversed, gone back and forth across Eurasia from west to east and east to west and back again, over and over again, for 40,000 years. Okay, so simply the idea of someone, uh, of groups of people gradually making their way from one end of the continent to the other is nothing new whatsoever to the modern era, all right? That goes back 40,000 years, okay? If you were to see a map of the Silk Road, you know, this is actually a fun exercise. Go online, go to Google, and type in map of the Silk Road. You won't find a single map that is the same as another map, all right? They are, they are putting lines all over the place. Some will show two or three roads. You might even find one map that'll just have one road, say this was, this was the Silk Road, and then you'll find other ones that look like a spider web where it's just roads going in every conceivable direction. Some will include past mar maritime routes as well as land routes, okay? The most honest maps of the, Silk of the Silk Roads, okay, should show an endless crisscross of lines. The spider web ones are the ones that most closely accord with the reality of how transportation worked over long distances, okay? As we're going to learn in this episode, no one, until the Mongols, until Genghis Khan, all right, no one was going from one end of Eurasia all the way to the other in one sitting, in one lifetime, okay? That's not how it worked. It's very small distances in intervals, and then you pass along your goods or whatever it is to the next, uh, uh, you know, it's like a relay race, sort of, 
All right, think of it like that. Then you pass the baton on to the next people. You pay them. They pay you your share for having moved something X number of miles. And then you're done with your portion of the routes across Eurasia. Okay, but what we want to focus on here today is we want to have a little bit more of an East Asia component and understand China's role or relation to the Silk Road. And in that regard, it's important to note that the choke point of all these Silk Roads, okay, before the maritime routes really take over in the 18th and 19th century, when the Silk Road is going over land, there's only one place where if you want to draw a line all the way from China to Europe, there's only one part of Eurasia in which pretty much every road almost certainly has to go through or very near in order to make that journey. Okay, and that is Xinjiang. Xinjiang is the modern Chinese name for the northwestern province of China that is, you know, geographically within Central Asia. All right, and it's defined in the south by this huge desert known as the Taklamakan Desert. And all along this desert are many oases in which the people of these oases engage in agriculture from melted alpine snow from the mountains all around them. Okay, so if you want to think of just one place in Eurasia that would most exemplify and epitomize many of the themes of the Silk Road, Xinjiang is a good place to start. And if you don't want to use the modern-day Chinese name for it, you can go with Turkestan, East Turkestan, sometimes is how it's referred. Some people say Chinese Turkestan. Uh, in the old days, the Chinese themselves had a different name for it. They called it the Xiyu, or the Western Territories. Uh, Xinjiang itself is a word that only goes back to the 18th century, and it just means new dominion when the Qing dynasty conquered this region and regarded it as a new addition to their empire, so they called it the new territories or the new dominion. Okay. All right. Now, the broadest definition that we can come up with for what the Silk Road really is, if it's not just to be this disembodied, abstract, romantic idea that has, you know, is, you, that, that, you, that you can never really pin down. The broadest definition would be the Silk Road was a, the continuous exchange and movement of goods, technology, languages, and people across Eurasia. Eventually, not all at once, but sooner or later, that happened continuously. It never stopped. There was an unceasing flow of goods, technology, languages, and people back and forth across Eurasia for many thousands of years, okay? The term itself, Silk Road, is a fairly recent vintage. We know when it was coined. It was coined in 1877 by the, by the, the Baron Ferdinand von Richthofen, a German scholar, and he was using the term specifically to talk about how silk from the Han Dynasty, 200 BC to 200 AD in China, the Han Dynasty, the silk they created, he was suggesting might have ended up in Rome. Eventually. Not all in one sitting, of course. Okay, Through many intermediaries, it was possible, he was suggesting, that Han Dynasty manufactured silk might have ended up in Rome. Okay, His focus was really just on this time period. All right, Classical China and classical Western civilization. He was talking about a two, three, four hundred year period of time only, and he was only really talking about one product, silk. All right, and the reason he focuses on silk is because silk was the one product of China that was known in Rome. 
All right. Their term for China was literally the same as their word for silk. Okay, because that was the land where silk came from, because the Chinese developed and manufactured silk earlier than any other part of the world. They will soon lose their monopoly on silk, but while they had that monopoly, many people very in, in very far distances in different parts of the world who came into contact with this silk were so amazed by the quality of the silk that they just referred to the land where it came from as the land of the silk, and that became synonymous with the Chinese. Okay? Now, since... The Baron von Richthofen. Okay, the parameters of what the Silk Road can encompass in an analytical sense, in a historical sense, have grown geographically, chronologically, and in a literary sense. Okay, chronologically now, if you're talking about the Silk Road among scholars, all right, you're talking about something that can be anywhere from really 4000 BC to about maybe even 1700 AD. All right. Almost a 6,000-year period now is acceptable in the broadest definitions of the Silk Road. Basically, what those years mean is that you have literate civilizations that have scripts or, you know, are on the verge of creating scripts. Um, They are clearly sending their influences through war, migration, trade across great distances and planting seeds, and merging with other cultures, all right? And we can chart this in archaeological and scriptural evidence to some degree or another, okay? So it could be anywhere from 4000 BC to 1700 AD. More often, most scholars like to narrow that a little bit and say, you know what, 200 BC, all right? Sort of the beginnings of the heyday of Rome and the beginnings of the heyday of the first major Chinese dynasty, the Han Dynasty. That's where we kind of want to begin here, all right? The first major classical, you know, civilizations and empires in both Western and Eastern extremes of Eurasia. And then they often will take it to around 1400 or so. 1400 AD being the, you know, the year that the Mongol Empire falls, not the exact year, um, but, you know, more or less speaking, In the 14th century, the Mongols, the huge Mongol empire created by Genghis Khan and then his grandson Kublai Khan and others, uh, that begins to fall apart, okay? And when the Mongol dominion over all of Eurasia, the, the lands they had linked together, falls apart, that's oftentimes when scholars start, you know, focusing more on the maritime routes and how that displaced the land routes, Okay, so really, most of the time, people are talking about 1600-year period, 200 BC to 1400 AD. All right, now, there are other agendas, a little more insidious, all right? Historians never just innocently talk about ideas. These ideas are always subjective and come from our own cultural and political back, uh, backgrounds. If you are in different parts of the world listening to scholars from different countries, the emphasis of what the Silk Road is very likely to change. Okay, if you're talking to scholars in America and Europe, there is going to be a little more emphasis, perhaps, on things that may have traveled from west to east, or at least that was the case in the early days in which Western scholars were talking about the Silk Road. They laid a lot of emphasis on what went from west to east, and oftentimes among Chinese scholars or Japanese scholars, it was the opposite. They laid emphasis on what what went from east to west. Okay, Some scholars today want to try and point out that the Turks were at the center of everything important that happened in Eurasia, because geographically they're also located in a very central part of Eurasia, right in the middle. 
and they'll say that Central Asia is the most important part of the Silk Road. Okay, uh, so to a certain extent, what the Silk Road represents, sort of, if you're in a debating mood, depending on what sort of emphasis you place on it, who moved which goods and ideas and languages where, you're also suggesting that certain people bear more or less responsibility for the creation of the modern world that we live in. Okay, more on that in a minute. It's a very important topic, but it's complex. We need to wrap our head around that. Okay, and then there's also other ways of thinking about the Silk Road. I say in a literary sense, because in the 20th century, this is also when you began to have Western archaeological expeditions that went to Central Asia, Xinjiang, the land in which I said is probably the most you know, important part of the Silk Road through which everyone has to pass at some point or another. You have your archaeological expeditions, you know, these Indiana Jones characters who went to Central Asia. And their accounts, their books, their travel narratives of what they did there uh, produced a very romantic idea of these ancient cultures that mixed and traveled and merged along the desert sands of Central Asia. Asia. Um, and I would say actually that it's a lot of the travelers who have a vested interest in propagating and continuing our romantic notions of what the Silk Road was. Okay, now the elusiveness of what the Silk Road actually means is a little bit beside the point. Okay, from a bird's eye perspective, what we care about is the idea of what the Silk Road represents in a geopolitical sense, and that's unique to Eurasia. In short, there is no equivalent of the Silk Road, either the idea of it or the reality of it, in the American continent, the African continent, or Australia. Okay? In other words, that is to say, there is no equivalent any, on, on any other continent of a level of exchange of people, goods, technology, languages, all that good stuff, there is no equivalent to a level of exchange that was so continuous and so influential that it gets its own field of study. I'm not trying to suggest that the people of the North and South America never had any contact with one another and they're a bunch of isolated communities or Africa or Australia or any of that. Okay? Obviously they did. It's a matter of degree. And on the Eurasian continent you get a greater degree, tenfold, of constant interactions between different peoples, different civilizations, over an extended period of time than you get on any other continent. All right, what are the implications of this realization? Well, they're very large implications. Cast your mind back to high school history class, perhaps high school AP history class. We didn't have this back when I was in high school, uh, but I understand it's quite common now. If you're in sort of an advanced uh, uh, high school history class, um, you often are being forced to read Jared Diamond's book, Guns, Germs, and Steel, The Fate of Human Societies. And in there, Jared Diamond poses the very famous question, he calls it Yali's question. I believe it was a man, an, in an Indonesian man, uh, who when he was doing his bird field studies in Indonesia, asked him, point blank, uh, how come you guys, meaning white people or Westerners, have so much stuff so many gadgets, technology, material wealth, and we don't. Why? And that sets Jared Diamond on this quest to answer the question that many historians have tried to answer, 
And many have done a much better job than Jared Diamond in answering them, but he was the most popular because he brought it together in a, in a very readable synthesis. Jared Diamond's, one of his major platforms in his thesis was the importance of Eurasia. Look at the continents. Eurasia is by far on sort of a horizontal geographical axis. You have the largest continuum of land in a temperate climate zone in which climate on one end of the continent is going to be similar to the, con to the climate on the other end of the continent. All right, you don't have like North and South America where it's an extreme difference in longitude. Or uh, latitude, let's see, lo flatitude, longitude, I always get those two mixed up. All right, top and bottom, <laughs> if you're looking at a map, okay? You go from Alaska all the way down to, you know, present-day Ar Argentina, you're going to pass through drastic extremes of temperature that you're not suited to. Okay? And it's very, there aren't that many routes. Once eventually you get to Panama, and it's just this tiny little route that you can go through. Okay? Eurasia, you're going to be on the generally the same latitude, give or take a few degrees. All right? Throughout the extent of the east-west continuum. And there's many different routes you can take because the land is still quite broad. Okay? You don't have any major oceans in your way that impede your path to maintain contact with other peoples. So what this means is the Silk Road is the idea that Eurasia was uniquely suited because of its geographical criteria. It was uniquely suited to create the pre-modern foundation of what we will call in a later episode, the Great Divergence. The Great Divergence meaning that one group of people somewhere on Earth is going to stumble upon the secrets of modern, in, modern industrial warfare and, in, and an industrial economy, the Industrial Revolution, okay? And whoever gets that secret, whoever stumbles upon the secrets of the Industrial Revolution, will rule the world for, you know, several hundred years. Okay? Now we're going to go into a little more detail and explain in a few episodes why it was the Europeans rather than the Chinese or anyone else in Eurasia who ended up coming out on top of the Great Divergence for a couple hundred years and attaining global supremacy. But note our points of comparison between Europe and China. We're not going to be talking about between China and North America. Okay? Because what the Silk Road tells us is that Eurasia was facilitating the most constant contact and exchange of ideas and technology, and then stimulating progress, or at least, you know, change over time into better technology, richer economies and societies and abilities to create bigger ships, bigger guns, bigger armies, whatever. Okay? If an industrial revolution was going to occur, one end of Eurasia would pioneer it. Because only in Eurasia can you say that if one people, one civilization, one country gets a hold of something, some great new innovation that gives them a leg up on their neighbors, everyone else on Eurasia will eventually get it in one form or another later. And then that will become the new baseline against which everyone else in Eurasia will build upon over the centuries. 
And if you go another 1,000, 2,000 years, you're going to have enough of these changes over time in which people are learning and adapting and exchanging things with one another that cumulatively, the civilizations of Eurasia will have an enormous technological, biological, economical advantage over the peoples of every other continent. So really, think big, okay? Think from a bird's eye perspective. That's the real importance of the Silk Road. Okay, the real importance of the Silk Road is that no other continent has the equivalent of a Silk Road and what it represents. Constant exchange of everything among many different civilizations over thousands of years, which in the end leads to the technological, biological, cultural, economical, global arms race is occurring mostly on Eurasia. And the peoples of other continents are eventually going to find themselves severely disadvantaged to anyone who comes from Eurasia, any part of Eurasia, than they will from people who come from other non-Eurasian continents. Okay. How do we know that Eastern and Western Eurasia were always linked, even if indirectly? I'm going to give you several different examples of exchange, cultural exchange, linguistic exchange, technological exchange, culinary exchange, biological exchange. And again, before I go through these examples, I want you to understand I'm not saying that other continents don't have contact and exchange with one another. They do. It's very rare to find a truly isolated people. Okay? What we're talking about is a matter of degree. The degree of this exchange is so much higher across Eurasia than it is on any other continent. Technological exchange. All horse technology and horses themselves. The Americas don't have horses. The image of the Indian, American Indian on horseback, that only occurs after the Europeans bring horses. There are no horses in the Americas. Okay? Horses are unbelievably important. Remember the empires of the steppe, the northern hybrid state. We talked about how the horse is the pre-modern tank. The tank of the pre-modern world. Whoever owns the best horses and horse technology, the ability to ride horses and use them in battle, will be you know, the preeminent political and military leaders of the land. And Eurasia is uniquely suited so that horse technology and the best breeds of horses themselves will constantly be exchanged from one end to the other and among all the people in between. That's extremely important. That's like if you think about today, if only, you know, one continent, the people of one continent had a monopoly on the, you know, the secrets of how to build a nuclear bomb and no other people could do that. Not because they're deficient personally, but because the environmental conditions have not created the conditions conducive to that. That's the equivalent. So both horses themselves and horse technology, meaning chariots, stirrups, a harness, bits, all right, that'll be diffused across Eurasia. Transport technology other than horses, all right, carts, wheels, and, you know, the ability to have those things be pulled by, by domesticated animals. Warfare technology, gunpowder, guns, cannons, fireworks. Okay, that's extremely important. And maybe you'll say, oh, the Chinese invented gunpowder. Okay, well... The Chinese invented it, but because they're on Eurasia, eventually that gunpowder secret's going to go everywhere in Eurasia. 
and everyone's going to benefit from it, or at least the states who control the monopoly on political violence will benefit from it. I don't know about the people who are actually having cannonballs, you know, split through their stomach. They're probably not enjoying it very much. Metalworking technology, okay, <laughs> extremely important from the ability to form and fashions from stone and then to steel, uh, better and better furnaces to, you know, transform the nature of stone and metal, the forges, okay, and then other technologies, silk weaving technologies, if you think about clothing, paper technologies for, you know, writing and record keeping, printing technology for books, you know, woodblock, movable type. Of course, sometimes one part of Eurasia gets these things first, but eventually it gets diffused everywhere else in Eurasia before it will get diffused to other continents. And oftentimes, remember when I'm talking about Eurasia, this usually includes Northern Africa as well. Some people will talk about the Afro-Eurasia complex, and they're usually thinking about Northern Africa before you get cut off by the Saharan Desert. All right. Um, linguistic exchange. Right. Languages. There are many different groups of languages in Eurasia, but they are actually fairly closely related when compared to the languages of other continents. All right. Think of the major language groups, the Turkic language group, Indo-European, Sino-Tibetan. There are tons of loanwords and grammatical similarities among many of these language groups that you do not find with the relatively, again, emphasis on relatively, not absolute, the relatively isolated American, South African, and Australian languages. All right? You may think that what they speak in the Indian subcontinent is so radically different than what they speak in Europe, but really, from a bird's eye perspective, they're not. They're actually fairly closely related when you consider the distances between many other languages on other continents throughout the world. Culinary exchange. Tea, wheat-based dumplings. Think of, you know, Shuijiao, uh, dumplings in East Asia. Uh, you know, the equivalent of that is going to be, you know, Italian ravioli. Exact same idea. A wheat-based encasement pocket, a pouch in which you throw in some meat and various veg vegetables or whatnot and put some sauce on it. Same idea, just in different incarnations across Eurasia. Grape wine will be first domesticated. Grapes will be domesticated first in the Caucasus and then diffused throughout your, uh, both ends of Eurasia. The watermelon, things like certain types of fruit, it comes from Africa. And eventually it'll get to China and the Chinese will call the watermelon the Sigua, the Western melon, because it came from the Western regions as far as they were concerned. Things like rice will also get diffused. Biological exchange. This one's very important, because as we know, when the Europeans start to take their boats out to other parts of the world, and they you know, go to the Americas and Australia and whatnot, and they meet people who did not have contact with these dense urban communities over thousands of years and shared all the dirties that these nasty, dirty European cities you know, gave rose to, dirty, nasty Chinese cities, all major cities of the pre-modern world were pretty gross. People's living habits were pretty disgusting, okay? They were dirty. They had all rife with disease. And many people died. But collectively, cumulatively, as a larger population, the people throughout Eurasia would develop, over time, a greater immunity to these diseases than anyone else. All right? They have a biological arms race within their bodies. And so when the Europeans go abroad, 
nine out of every 10 Native American who will die will not die from active, you know, genocide of swords and guns. They'll die from just breathing the germs in the air that the Europeans bring with them. And if it happened to be the Chinese who, who took their ships over and got to the Americas first, the same thing would have happened. The Chinese germs would have killed off the natives as well. All right, that might be one of the most consequential of all the, the methods of exchange of Eurasia on the Silk Road was the exchange of diseases, biological exchange, and the immunity that it produced in collective populations. Of course, again, individually, if you died of one of these horrible diseases in one of these nasty, dirty, big cities in Eurasia, you're probably not thinking this is a very great deal. Okay. Uh, also, in a medicinal uh, sense, there was also a widespread diffusion across Eurasia of the humoral theory of medicine. All right, that the body was made up of many humors. In the day before modern medicine, it was often thought that there were various humors, all right, forces, natural forces in your body, and there you had to maintain some sort of balance or equilibrium among them. And you could, you know, uh, leach yourself of a certain amount of blood to drain one type of humor and breed it into better balance with something else, or eat this or that. Uh, that was a nature of uh, that. That was a theory of medicine that was widely shared across Eurasia. All right, it wasn't just the medieval Europeans who thought that that we laugh at now when we look at their medical advice books. Um, that was a well entrenched medicinal theory throughout Eurasia, China as well. Cultural diffusion, cultural exchange, anything that has to do with a horse. All right, and horses were a big part of Eurasian culture. Okay, think of games, you know, games on horseback, things like polo, the hunt. Okay, there was a trans-Eurasian royal horse culture among the elites. If you got wealthy and powerful, you defined yourself largely by being on horseback most of the time. Your games were on horseback, your modes of travel were on horseback, and the common people wouldn't be able to be on those horses. You have the exchange of musical instruments, stringed instruments. We'll run the gamut, we'll run the breadth of Eurasia from east to west and back again. Art in all of its forms. Okay? The Greek gods will end up being worshipped in Afghanistan and Central Asia. All right? Indian Buddhism will end up being worshipped in China. All right? These things are constantly moving thousands of miles along various roads. Call them Silk Roads if you want. Okay? And then you get these fusions of art in which you're like, oh, this is obviously a Roman influence and this is a Chinese influence or this is a Persian influence. You don't see that degree of fusion in other continents of the world. Okay? You will actually see some religions that will share the exact same texts. Think of the Judeo-Christian Islam religious complex. You have the Hebrew Bible, and then the Christians say, we're going to take the Hebrew Bible and just add our New Testament on top of it. The Muslims say, well, we're going to take the Hebrew Bible, the, New, the Christian Testament, and then we're going to add the Quran on top of it. You're just adding to one book after the other. Okay, that's, you know, one of the best examples of exchange that I can think about. You know, overall, we tend to emphasize East-West differences, but compared to other continents, East and West, as far as Eurasia goes, are siblings, and other continents are like third or fourth or fifth cousins. All right, let's talk about some of the major themes of the Silk Road. Some of these will be Familiar to those of you who have listened to past episodes, namely the Empire of the Steppe, the Northern Hybrid States. Of course, one of the most important themes of the Silk Road is the enduring importance of horses, nomads, and the military in stimulating constant continental interaction from east to west and west to east. 
Persia, India, the Middle East, and of course China. Much of these regions were unsuited for the best type of horse breeding. They had to constantly replenish their stock of horses, both quantity and quality of horses, from the steppe peoples, the nomads, who in the old days, prior to the Industrial Revolution, were all over Eurasia. All right, they were the go-betweens. And they created many of the states, the largest empires and states that existed in Eurasian history as well. One of the most common transactions in the early days was the Chinese states paying silk for horses from nomadic peoples on the steppe. Silk was the ideal currency, and if we're talking about the Han Dynasty and the Tang Dynasty and the Song Dynasty, then silk should absolutely be emphasized if we want to talk about the Silk Road. Okay? Um, silk was an ideal currency in the days before, you know, there were many forms of currency. It was light and portable. You wrap it up. It was called a bolt. A bolt of silk was, you know, a certain length of silk, maybe 20, 30 feet. And then you rolled it up into uh, something that actually looked like a baton, like a, a relay baton, a little thicker perhaps. And it was very light, very portable, didn't take up much space. And it represents an investment of valuable resources and labor. It's not easy to make. It takes a while. All right, and that was coveted throughout Asia as a form of currency. Records from the Han and Tang dynasty show that up to 900,000 bolts of silk per year were often given in payments or tributes or as part of treaties that had been made with Central Asian nomadic tribes in exchange for either protection or for a supply of horses for the military of sedentary states. Okay, one of the iron laws of Eurasian history is that he who dominates horse production will wield an inordinate amount of military influence, well out of proportion to the size of the population of the group that actually dominates horse production. East Asian history in particular is a constant pendulum between an attempt by the heartland, the Han heartland, to get a hold of horses and then rule themselves, versus peoples of the northern steppe, Mongolia and Central Asia, using those same horses to just say, instead of exchanging with you, how about we just invade you and kill you and then rule over you? We already have a monopoly on the best horses, and thus we have a very good chance of winning on the battlefield. One of the earliest excursions of the Chinese states into Central Asia, into the area of the Silk Road, occurred in the 2nd century BC, in which the Han Dynasty sends an envoy by the name of Zhang Qian, to, to the valley of Fergana in Central Asia, like modern-day Uzbekistan. And Zhang Tian is trying to look for the infamous, uh, the famous, not infamous, the, for the famous blood-sweating horses, because that was what made empires tick. You need to get a hold of the best horses. And of course, a horse that sweats blood must just be magnificent. Doesn't mean it's dying. <laughs> it means it's the most magnificent horse ever. And, and he came back and he said, quote, They have many fine horses which sweat blood. Their forebears were born from heavenly horses. Well, that's the best pedigree you could possibly ask for, for horses. Okay, so it's this desire to get a hold of horses, which are often going to be bred in the Central Asian steppe, in the middle of Eurasia, that will stimulate so much of the initial impulse to have formal exchanges and proximity to peoples further along west or east in Eurasia. Okay? The Chinese expansion into Central Asia, whenever the Chinese expand into Xinjiang, into Central Asia, it was a reflection of their success in controlling horse production, either through conquest or incorporation. 
And when the Chinese did this, success usually came about not through beating nomads, but by joining forces with nomads, because it's very difficult to beat nomads. In fact, it's impossible. And so oftentimes, the Chinese infusion of resources into Central Asia, all right, the, the, the times when they made the Silk Road a tangible reality on the ground by having a presence in Central Asia and trying to have contact with further cultures and civilizations to the West, it was when they set up military garrisons and colonies along the desert oases of northwestern China, Central Asia. And each time that they set up their military garrisons, attempting to have relations or guard against or you know, work together with the nomadic peoples, they infuse the Silk Road with silk, coins, and grain. Okay, but this is again, it, ebb, it, 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 it waxes and wanes. It's not a continuous Chinese influence and presence in Central Asia. And even when they do go out there and set up military garrisons in Central Asia, it's often they're there for no more than 100 years or so. A dynasty might last at most 250 years. Okay? They don't actually go, you know, go out on military initiatives to Central Asia until they've already been in power for 50 years or so. Then it takes a while to consolidate power. And then they, uh, when, when, when the dynasty begins to weaken, one of the first things that goes are their peripheries. And they'll lose those long before the, the heart of the empire falls. So oftentimes, they're only out there at most maybe 100 years. Okay, But when they are out there, soldiers and the military and all the things that come with a military establishment end up becoming disseminated throughout Central Asia. Okay, now other than soldiers, who traveled the Silk Road and what did they do? All right, soldiers clearly were out there, moved over great distances. Surprisingly, however, merchants rarely appear in the extant records. A romantic image of the Silk Road is that it's merchants on horseback, with little, you know, maybe, maybe with little pot bellies, going from oasis to oasis. Okay, but they rarely appear in the records that we have actually recovered from known stopping points on the Silk Road. When merchants do appear, they usually appear in tandem with Chinese military garrisons or the military garrisons of other empires. All right, and when they also appear, they seem to engage in a trade that is quite limited in scope. They're not traveling thousands of miles. It's not one merchant going over thousands of miles. I said no one ever goes from Rome to Chang'an in China, you know, the, the, themselves. Not until Marco Polo and the Mongols does that happen. All right? Most merchants might go no more than 20 to 50 miles, and that's it. And they're usually servicing military garrisons, acting as a go-between, an intermediary, an economic intermediary between military garrisons that need the products of a nearby oasis. And they'll supply that. They'll become the middleman. Now, among the merchants, the most famous were a people known as the Sogdians, who spoke a Iranian language, a Persian language, and came from Central Asia. And we know that the Sogdians were merchants who traveled fairly large distances. They're probably the most widely traveled merchants. They come from the, you know, the region of uh, uh, Central Asia. And we know that there were large communities of Sogdians who lived in the Tang Dynasty capital of Chang'an. They had their own quarter in the city, and Sogdians appear prominently in Tang Dynasty art. You'll see sculptures and whatnot of, of people on uh, horseback and camelback, or a merchant with a flask of wine, and the foreign features, you know, the tall nose, the bushy beard hair and whatnot, will be exaggerated uh, to bring out the foreignness of these people. These are Sogdians. 
All right, an Iranian-speaking, uh, uh, long-distance merchant traveling people. Now, when they traveled, most caravans were small. They weren't large. So again, that, that image of, you know, miles of camels going across the desert is false. Most caravans we know were between five people um, to ten people with an absolute maximum upper limit of maybe 20 people on a caravan. Okay? They're not that big. Really. Sometimes there, there might be more camels than there would be actual people <laughs> on any given caravan going along the Silk Road. Okay? Trade goods eventually did reach Rome from China, and China from Rome, but only through lots and lots of middlemen, not from large, enormous caravans traversing thousands of miles at a time. Now, soldiers, merchants, what are the sort of long-distance travelers do we have? There aren't that many, but there's a few other categories. The first is diplomatic envoys, like Zhang Tian, who was sent by the Han Dynasty to find the blood-sweating horses of, of Central Asia. Right? Long you know, diplomatic envoys, obviously, would travel over great distances. You know, but you know, How many people is that? That's a very small number of people. Zhang Tian is one person. All right, that is not a great migration or movement of people over great distances. A slightly more number would be religious pilgrims. Okay, um, in Chinese history, you have Kumarajiva, Fasian, Xuanzang. All right, uh, Buddhist monks, Buddhist pilgrims who would travel to India in search of original Sanskrit Buddhist sutras that they could then take back with them to China and translate into Chinese. All right, translation projects. Japanese Buddhist monks would also do this. They'd travel to China and sometimes they even travel to India in an attempt to find original, what they thought, uncorrupted Sanskrit sutras and then translate them, get a better translation into their own language. Okay, eventually, these translation projects will facilitate the Chinese language borrowing some 35,000 Sanskrit words. Right, that's linguistic exchange for you. Okay, again, I, I, I didn't say there wasn't linguistic exchange among the various tribes and peoples of North America, okay? But they're not exchanging 35,000 words uh, between two civilizations and language groups that are 3,000 miles away from each other over enormous mountain ranges. That is happening in Eurasia, okay? Uh, but really, you know, these are your only long-distance, willing and voluntary and enthusiastic travelers, all right, to a certain extent, soldiers, I don't know how willing they are, but soldiers, okay, merchants who know they can make a profit, diplomatic envoys who are serving their king, and religious pilgrims, okay? Uh, beyond that, you know, traveling over land was simply too dangerous and uncertain to be profitable back in the day, all right? You went the minimum amount of distance you had to go to turn an acceptable profit on your venture. The majority percentage-wise, if you think about the number of people who are traveling, the majority of mobile people, people who moved over long distance and then, you know, created new communities, were those who had no choice. All right, migrants, refugees, and slaves. Okay, the oases of Xinjiang, Chinese Turkestan, in the old days, were filled with mixed communities of indigenous peoples, and communities of outsiders who had migrated from nearby regions. Very often we know that communities of people from what is now northwestern India would migrate over the Pamirs or the Himalayan mountain ranges. 
All right. Not by choice, because you don't make that journey unless you have to. It's very dangerous. But because they're running away from war, from famine, from drought, from persecution, whatever it might be. And then they, they, they create a new life in the oases of Central Asia. The most common situation is that you would have the indigenous original people of any given oasis in Central Asia. They would speak a language that we no longer have anymore, that is no longer spoken, it eventually becomes extinct, and then they would adopt an Indian-based script from the migrants or refugees who came from what is now Pakistan, Afghanistan, and India. Okay, an Indian-based script might be Karosti, Brahmi, all right, and they'd use this foreign script to, re- to and they would adapt it, and then they would record the sounds of their own, now lost, extinct, language. That was the sort of, you know, cultural linguistic fusion that occurred among large groups of people, you know, entire communities, not just a handful of religious pilgrims or diplomatic envoys. Okay? And then they would fuse their culture together as well. Now, all this begins to change a little bit. You know, sort of the next major paradigm shift occurs with the Mongol conquests. All right, the Mongols, you know, peerless in battle, uh, the Europeans use the Latin term to refer to them. They refer to them as Tartars. That comes from the Latin word Tartarus, which means hell. <laughs> the Mongols were hell on horseback from the European perspective. Okay? But from another perspective, what the Mongols did is they managed to really unite in one political conglomeration the many different lands of the Silk Road for the very first time. All right, they would briefly, for about 100 years, they would solve the security and banditry problem. All right, that was one reason you didn't travel much in the old days, because you're probably going to get ripped off, and someone from your party is going to get, you know, killed or raped or something like that. It was dangerous to travel long distances if you don't have your own army accompanying you. All right, when the Mongols take over much of Eurasia, the grasslands that go through what is now present-day Kazakhstan, parts of, you know, central Russia um, and Mongolia, those grasslands became the best Silk Road, so to speak. Uh, Or at least just, you know, in general, the one road that was most stable and the safest that went all the way across Eurasia. Uh, That was the one during Mongol rule. The Mongols also, not surprisingly then, facilitated the first irrefutable evidence of direct contact, direct travel, by individuals who, 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 who travel entirely from Europe all the way to China. It's not just Marco Polo. Marco Polo, what his scholars debate is, you know, exactly where he went and the extent of the activities he engaged in when he was in China, but generally speaking, most scholars agree that he got somewhere in the Mongol-Chinese realm. Okay, it's just a matter of, you know, fighting over the details. But he wasn't the only one. Marco Polo, William of Rubric, Pope Innocent will send a letter to a Mongol Khan. All right, all these people, why are they going to China, to Mongol-ruled China? Well, it's possible now. It's safe to do so for a brief period of time when it wasn't before. You can, you can you know, be assured that you can have your trusted person in charge of a letter or, you know, something you want to sell or whatever throughout the breadth of Eurasia without any other other intermediaries. You don't have to pass the baton to anyone. You can keep the baton the whole time yourself. Okay, they're all motivated by the possibility of a trade and political alliance, a commercial and political alliance with the Mongols. Okay, 
That's what, Mar- that's what Marco Polo wants. That's what Pope Innocent wants. They want to come to some sort of terms and understanding that will benefit both sides, but mostly benefit the Europeans because the Industrial Revolution hasn't occurred yet. And, you know, the locus of economic and military and political power is on the eastern end of Eurasia, not on the western end. Okay, the Europeans are begging for their lives from the Mongols. They're terrified of the Tartarus, the hell on horseback. And because they're in the weaker position, the Mongols don't agree. They all fail to achieve their goals. All right, they don't have any meaning, no meaningful trade alliances or political alliances ever result with the Mongol Khans. The European political envoys are dismissed by the Mongols, and traders like Polo, regardless of what he did in China, uh, most of their business was really located on the Black Sea, much closer to Europe than it was to China. Okay, What the Mongols do do is they also create an additional category of a deliberate long-distance traveler, namely military technicians and literate specialists such as astronomers, administrators, who worked in service to the Mongols and were transferred around to different realms, such as the Uyghurs, the Persians, the Arabs, and yes, the Europeans. Okay, Marco Polo claims to have worked in service to the Mongols in the city of, uh, I think he actually says Yangzhou, the city of Yangzhou. He says, I was the governor of a city for a while. Now, regardless of whether that's true, even to a small extent, even if he's exaggerating, we know that at least some Europeans and Arabs and Uyghurs and Persians were employed by the Mongols to serve in China or to serve in Central Asia. These are what we called independent intermediaries in the previous episode. And we actually know remarkably there is evidence, irrefutable evidence, that there was an actual established Italian community in the city of Yangzhou during the 13th century in China. Okay? That's the kind of thing you don't find on other continents. All right, now things are really getting real. The Mongols have facilitated unprecedented transportation and exchange possibilities across Eurasia. They have, in other words, they have now fully realized the potential of what the Silk Road can offer the most powerful rulers of Eurasia. All right, that's the legacy of the Mongols. It's a great preview of the Industrial Revolution to come. All right. Now, what happens to the Silk Road? Well, the fate of the Silk Road is uh, sort of sealed in the 17th, 18th, and definitely by the 19th century. All right. There's several things that we need to point out here. All right. Uh, First, the Russian and the Manchu empires, Manchu Chinese empires. All right. The Russian empire from the West, and then the Manchu empire that will create the Qing dynasty, They'll ally with the Mongols and the Chinese, and they'll create the Qing dynasty. In 1644, they'll they'll set their capital up in Beijing. These two empires, over the course of the 16th and 17th century, slowly encroach and incorporate the regions of Central Asia. Okay? They sort of close off Central Asia to other parts of the world. They reorient it. Instead of, um, you know, Central Asia becoming like this this multi-directional crossroads that people from every direction can go through and exchange goods and ideas, uh, what the Russians are going to do is they're going to take over Central Asia. They're going to take over what is today Kazakhstan, Uzbekistan, Kyrgyzstan, Tajikistan, Turkmenistan, all of those. And then they'll orient the economies and the peoples of those places to to Russia alone, to St. Petersburg. 
And the Chinese will do the same for their Central Asian conquest. They'll do it for Mongolia. They'll do it for Xinjiang. They'll do it for Tibet. And they'll reorient all these peoples towards Beijing. And each empire will discourage contacts that go in the other direction beyond their empire. That's a security threat. Okay? So the Russian and the Manchu slash Chinese slash Mongol conquests of the 17th and 18th centuries will reorient Central Asia towards St. Petersburg or Beijing and basically cut Central Asia down the half between two jealous empires that now are saying it's a threat to have contact all the way with the other end of Eurasia because that's a dangerous empire over there. Okay. Second, in the 19th century, with the rise of the Industrial Revolution, steam-powered, en- uh, steam-powered engines, okay, repeating rifles, steamships, you will see the irreversible decline of horse warfare. Horses will still be used in battle, of course. All, well, all through the World War II, you'll still have a use for horses. But that's like for officers getting around. And for ceremonial purposes, for the most part. Okay? Horses as the main bulk of an army. And what gives you your strength and your advantage. That will decline precipitously with the rise of the Industrial Revolution. If you can shoot a horse from, you know, a thousand feet away. And then have your gun ready to go in another minute. uh, You know, the horses, their their advantage, their mobility, their swiftness. uh, It's very difficult now for them to give their riders an advantage. And then the Industrial Revolution, as we said in the previous episode, will also create uh, the ability for to have better fertilizers. That will mean that the pastoral step, which was once only suitable for fragile rotational uh, grazing of animals that the nomads rely upon, will now be farmed. All right, that also ruins the nomadic way of life. And even if the farming fails in its failure, it'll destroy the step and make it impossible for the animals to come back and graze. Okay, so really, the, the, the expansion of dueling Russian and Manchu Chinese Mongol empires in the 17th and 18th century, combined with the rise of the Industrial Revolution, will really hurt the overland routes. Okay, but I would say the Silk Road never really ends. Okay, many people like to make the argument that since there's no one Silk Road, and it wasn't really a stable road, and Silk wasn't even the main thing that went across it most of the time, um, that there's no reason we need to privilege land routes. Okay, and they're, I think it's, they're absolutely right. If we consider maritime routes, then the exchange between the western and eastern and, you know, middle parts of Eurasia never ends. It's just, it, it begins on land. It flourishes on land, and then it sort of transfers, you know, uh, to the sea. And the land route never really dies off. There's always still exchange going on, even in the 20th century. In my own research, you know, I'm, 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 I'm looking at caravans that go from Beijing to Xinjiang over, over a three-month period, and they're on camels. It looks like something out of, the, out of the 13th century. That still happens, okay? But all the real wealth and power is being negotiated on the ocean. From Europe, to the Middle East, to the Indian subcontinent, to Southeast Asia, to Southern China, and then to Northeast China. Okay? The sea routes were faster. They were safer. They, you, know, you didn't have to conquer an entire continent in order to get rid of banditry. All right? Sea routes were f- faster, safer, and cheaper. So thus, more profitable. 
right? Save that thought because we're going to talk much more about that in a few episodes when we get to the Great Divergence. And then we're going to be talking about why Europe and not China. Now, China had a presence on the maritime routes too. Okay? Uh, in a few episodes, we're going to talk about the maritime expeditions of Zheng He during the Ming Dynasty in the 1400s. Uh, China did have fleets that regularly went out to Southeast Asia, uh, somewhat less regularly went out to India, but still went there, and then sometimes even went to the eastern coast of Africa. Okay? But eventually, China will recede from official maritime convoys and voyages. There will always be merchants unofficially who try their luck on the sea and go to Southeast Asia. All right, but the Chinese state actually sponsoring great expeditions out into the ocean, as we will see. That ends after the Zheng He expeditions. The last one goes out in 1434. Okay, and the scholars at court, the Confucian scholars, argue that this is a waste of money. They say that the strength of China, its, its chief orientation, its source of wealth and power, is oriented overland towards the heartland, the Yangtze and Yellow River, and towards Inner Asia. That's where our true interests have always lain, and that's where the life or death of the Chinese state will be determined, overland. In other words, the Chinese were probably the most committed to the continued viability of overland routes of any Eurasian power, okay? Because they were the ones who were least willing to commit, you know, huge resources to the maritime routes. Zheng He accepted. In the 19th century, the Chinese will even have this debate between Zhou Zongtang and Li Hongzhang, two major statesmen. Li Hongzhang arguing for the creation of a new modern navy on western lines, and Zhou Zongtang saying we need to reconquer our lost Central Asian territories like Xinjiang, because that's where our, our, our eyes have always been cast, is towards Central Asia. That was always the source of our strength. And the chief military threats to us was in Central Asia, not from the sea. Traditionally, from the sea, all we had to worry about were Japanese pirates. Not a big threat. And the court goes with Zhou Zongtang, and they say, yes, we will continue to commit to overland, to Central Asia, not to the maritime Vistas, not to create a modern European-style navy. And so, China would make this fateful decision to recommit to the overland routes after the Silk Road had really already transferred its major substance, dynamic substance, to the maritime routes. Okay, so the fact that the Silk Road is so often defined by Chinese involvement in Central Asia... In other words, we say that China was the most committed of, of you know, many other states to the political and economic intercourse with Central Asia and continued to want to you know, give that Central Asian connection substance, wealth and resources into the 19th century. That commitment on, this, on the part of the Chinese will become a significant handicap when the Western ships finally arrive in the 19th century and the dynamic substance of the Silk Road has already moved to the maritime sea routes. It is, however, the reason why China today has so much inner Asian territory, rather than overseas empires and colonies like the Europeans. But all that for another episode. Now, in our next episode, we're going to take a little, we're going to, you know, switch, switch, switch gears a little bit, and we're going to talk about Korea, the place of Korea in the pre-modern East Asian world order. I hope you'll join me. 